0: welcome to coach house talks where to begin where to begin in a overview of the Bible from cover to cover because that's what we've set ourselves the task of doing and to see that actually it's one complete picture it's one complete story so where to begin well a few years ago we had a lady in our church many of you will know her. she's not with us anymore uh, we say that's not with us that sounds wrong she is with us she's in another church <laughs> Um, just to clarify. So we had a lady who was here in the church with us, and she was really struggling with trusting Jesus in, uh, in her life in her relationship. She got that Jesus was God. She understood that. Okay, so you'd sit down with her, and she'd go, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus is God. I get that. She understood that she was a sinner. She understood that Jesus had died in her place. To put it bluntly, she believed in Jesus. But... She wanted desperately to live her life as a Christian and start off on this journey with Jesus, but she couldn't commit. She had a problem. And the problem was this. She believed evolution all of her life. Okay, so she'd come into the church. She'd been introduced to Jesus. She'd heard all about that God created the heaven and the earth and man. And she just could not get this to compute in her mind. She couldn't get the first few chapters of Genesis to comply with her viewpoint. And for a long time, she failed to accept Jesus as a saviour because she could not reconcile the beginning of the Bible with what she'd been taught and what she thought she knew. Now, I don't believe that she was necessarily or is necessarily alone in this dilemma. And I spent many weeks talking through and trying to help her come to a conclusion so that she could accept Jesus. How did we manage to resolve her questions? Well... I simply pose them in a different way. Instead of asking how God created, I simply move the question to why did God create you? Not how did God create the world, i.e. what were the mechanics behind creation? How did it happen? But why did God create the world and everything in it? For what reason would God create man? for what reason would He create me and you? And as we start our big picture journey through scripture, I'd like us to start asking the question why, rather than how, okay? Now, this isn't to close off our minds and to say, shut down your minds, shut down everything you think you know, shut down your thinking, but I'd rather try and help us to give a, a better focus in order to understand the context, and perhaps more importantly, begin to see how much we matter to God. From beginning to end, because He's not finished with us. Okay, we're, we're still on a journey. And I know that God doesn't need us. Okay, let me just qualify that. God does not need you and I, but He does want us. He does want to have relationship to, with us. Now, Genesis simply means beginnings. So, let's call it what it is, the book of beginnings, the beginning of the world, the beginning of mankind, the beginning of sin and rejection, the beginning of covenant promises, the beginning of Israel, and the beginning of restoration, all in Genesis. So, most of what, we know of Genesis, or what we've got presented to us as Genesis, is what we would call prehistory. In other words, the person writing down the information that we've got in front of us, which we hold to be Moses in most cases, although he didn't, there would have been other contributors, he doesn't actually appear in scripture until chapter two of the next book, Exodus. So he's writing of something that he's heard of, or he's been told about, and he's writing it down and collecting his thoughts from God. And he's writing about the things, therefore, that from his perspective, his understanding of things as he's growing up in the world that he was growing up in. And this is really important for us to grasp because it gives us some key insight into our understanding of the accounts in Genesis. Jesus himself attributes the Pentateuch, that's the first five books or the law that Moses wrote, he attributes them, Jesus attributes them to Moses, okay, so regardless of what we think, Jesus says, Moses wrote the first five books. God gave the instructions to Moses, Moses wrote it down. Okay, so what we've got in front of us came to us, and Jesus makes this claim, came through Moses. Now, he also makes another astonishing claim that we should really take note of. In John 5, verse 46, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote about me. Do you get that? Moses wrote about Jesus, Jesus said. Jesus claims that Moses wrote about him. Now, we might not see his name written down, but the thread that runs through all that God does is Jesus. I think we can get sucked into thinking that the Old Testament is about God, that the Gospels are about Jesus, and that the church was and is governed by the Holy Spirit. It's a very convenient way of us talking about the Trinity and the purposes of the Trinity. But the truth is that all three persons of the Godhead are active from day one together until, well, whenever, whatever day is in front of us. In the beginning, God. But God was not alone. He existed in perfect relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. God did not create Jesus. God did not create the Holy Spirit. They are one and the same, existing in perfect unity together. Genesis 1 verse 26 says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Now, given that Jesus says we're writing about him, or Moses is writing about him, Jesus is there right at the very beginning. So when God created mankind in our image, he's talking about the Godhead of three persons that we would know as God, the Son and the Holy Spirit together. Now, we haven't got time to delve into all the detail and debate the questions that we often allow to sidetrack us and stop us seeing from what the Scripture is actually trying to reveal. However we view the book of beginnings, it should be remembered that the purpose of it is to show God's plan for all of us. We are, after all, His image bearers. We bear the image of God. He created us in his image. We create and we hold his image. We are made in the image of God, and whatever our perspective, we are uniquely fashioned in his image. We are not an accident. We are intentional, Regardless of how much Satan has allowed our view to be distorted, we are made specifically and specially in God's image. We are, humans are. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, scripture tells us. We were created for relationship with God who ultimately understands relationship, i.e., he existed in perfect relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. And he made mankind in his image so that we could have relationship with him. Now, Moses isn't too interested in the how. How do I know that? Well, first three chapters of Genesis deal with the creation of the world, everything in it, mankind, and the fall of mankind in three chapters. That's three small chapters in the whole of that. Moses wasn't particularly interested in the mechanics. He wanted you to see what was really behind the words that were being written, that God is intending relationship with humans. And I think the entire narrative of Genesis is posed so that we ask the question, why? Why did God create us? Why did or does God desire a relationship with us? Why did God choose to pursue us and keep us for himself? What is the scripture revealing to us and telling us about the nature of God who chose to create us and what is the reason for choosing to reveal himself to us in such a way? Moses is trying to make us see that that's the real question. The writer to the Hebrews condenses the whole view of creation in its theological perspective, theology being our understanding of God, into this. Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3 quite plainly tells us, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command. That's what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. Hebrews just wraps it all up. By faith, by faith, you understand that God created the universe. What follows in Hebrews is our well known cast of the figures of faith, the characters who displayed faith in God and and his instructions in them. These are not perfect people, as you will no doubt know. They are people who fail, but they are people who displayed the characteristics of faith in God and understanding when God tells them to do something, regardless of their failings, he will follow it through. He will do it but it's prefaced with this understanding that faith is required to understand creation. That's what it starts with. There's your top line. By faith, you understand that. God is in charge. God's in control. God made it. End of. Now we'll start on the little bits about you. Now, I'm a traditionalist. I understand the scriptures as they're given. Six literal days to me. I have no problem with six literal days. But whatever you're understanding, it requires faith. Because Hebrews tells us to believe it was God's command that was behind it all in the beginning. After all, there's a lot of weight behind our recognition that we are made in God's image. And one of the things that I really struggle with when we are asked to have long time spans and that somehow we became something is that we take God's relationship with man out of its entire context, and we make it something we've stumbled on, we've stumbled into. It's something that we've somehow just happened upon. But God intended it. And we have to understand that. We have to reconcile that we are made in God's image. Now, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 gives us a grandstand view of God's relationship with man, how it works out. For a kickoff, we were meant to be eternal. Hey, good news, everyone. When God made mankind, he didn't make you to die. He made you to be eternal, in eternal relationship with him. That was the intention for you and I. Amazing, that, isn't it? And that is such a, when you think about that, God made you to be with him forever in perfect relationship. He gave us a beautiful world to inhabit, to enjoy it, to look after it. And he provided everything that we would need to live in perfect harmony and relationship. Now, the importance of relationship is further qualified when a perfect partner is created for Adam. It's not good for man to be alone, God said. So once, God, once Adam had this beautiful privilege of having all the animals paraded up to him to name and also to see if any of them suited him, he realized and God realizes that actually he needs something from his own flesh for perfect relationship. Just as we or Adam was made for perfect relationship with God, Eve was created for perfect relationship with Adam. Now, I don't want us to miss what God is doing here. God is saying, well, nothing except Eve quenched the need for Adam's relationship. And so God made this helper that Adam desired. And just as man was made in God's image, so woman was made from Adam. And this all serves to show us how important the right relationship is in God's eyes. Don't underestimate the correct balance that God created for us before we fell, okay? Hold that, before we fell, before sin crept in, everything was perfect in our relationships, man, woman, God, man, everything. Everything was in perfect balance, no questions asked, no deviations, that was what God created. But then chapter 2 zones in on the final seven verses of chapter one. And actually, this happens a lot in scripture. You'll find that a grand picture is given, and then it goes back and just delves into the descriptive a little bit more. So when you're reading things, just be aware that sometimes you're reading about the detail that's just been given to you. So the big picture, then a bit of detail that you might need. So the first f- the verses in chapter two, they zone in on the final seven verses of chapter one. And they give us the detail of what this relationship would look like. Man was created for God. So now what does that relationship look like? And it affords us the certainty that the important why of Genesis 1 is this. Relationship between you and God. Between me and God. Between humans who were created in God's image and himself. If you want to know what the big picture is, there it is. You were made for relationship with God. Now, its focus begins with God's provision for us. The fruit of every tree is delicious. Now imagine walking around in a a garden with trees where the fruit was so plump and juicy and looking absolutely gorgeous that you could just go, I can't have any of that. And it's going to satisfy me. Because that's kind of what Adam and Eve had. Everything was good for them. And everything looked beautiful. In other words, God made such a beautiful garden. He was showing his love for mankind by saying, look what I've given you. And look what's been provided for you. You need nothing else. We can dwell together forever. How beautiful is that? Except except that we're introduced to two trees. When we did our first catalyst, our first question was, why did God create two trees? Discuss. We're introduced to two trees to make, that make all of the difference in the world. One gives life, and one brings death. Now, see... If you remember the thing with the chairs last week, when God created man, it was the, with the intention of eternity. We were made for eternity, and this eternity for a relationship with God. But in order for a relationship to be real and two way, we have to show a commitment to the person who wants that relationship with us. God does not make us like robots where we just automatically go, yeah, we obey. Yes, sir. No, sir. How high do you want us to jump? God creates us with free will. He creates us to actually desire, for us to want to desire to have a relationship with God. We have to show our ability to be able to be obedient to a God who has provided all of the beauty and all of the fruit and all of the wonderful world for us to live in. So He gives us an opportunity to be obedient. Therefore, one tree is planted. With a distinct and unique qualification. Genesis 2, 16 to 17 tells us that God says to Adam and Eve, you may eat freely the fruit of every in fact, he says it to Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, One thing I just want to make perfectly straight and perfectly true is that that fruit did not kill you. Eating that fruit didn't kill you. Eating that fruit didn't kill Adam, didn't kill Eve. It brought death to mankind because it revealed the heart behind the action. It was the movement towards that fruit. It was the movement to reach out pick it from the branch and disobey God's instruction not to eat it. That is what brought death. And did it bring death straight away? Absolutely not. So it looks as though Satan was true when the serpent said, will it really kill you? If you eat from that fruit, will, it really, will you really die? Well, the answer is absolutely, unequivocally, yes, you will die. And it brought death into mankind who was made for eternity, suddenly we find that we haven't got eternity, we're robbed of eternity. Satan who tempted mankind to eat was correct in the statement that the eating the fruit wouldn't cause you to die, Well, not immediately anyway. It was the punishment for disobedience that would cause our death. Genesis 3:22 to 24 says, Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out to take the fruit from the tree of life and eat that? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the, land, the ground from which they had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to do what? to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, I want you to imprint that, stick it in your mind's eye and keep it there. We now do not have access to the tree of life. That's the punishment from eating from the other tree. We now do not have access to the tree of life. Our eternity, our eternal state with God in relationship is now marred. Because we were disobedient. So you see how the narrative forces or makes us focus on the reason for relationship. Why it's so important. And the consequence of choosing not to live in it. Eternity is broken because of that consequence. The tree of life is now out of reach. See how it leaves us in no doubt that God desired to give us everything. He wanted us to show our love by choosing obedience. God's goodness towards us, his desire to pursue relationship with us, is also shown, even in the darkest hour of man's disobedience. And and let's make no bones of this. This is the darkest hour of man's disobedience. God says, you've got one rule, that's it. And we can't even do that. We can't even do that. We can't be trusted to keep one rule, let alone, the umpteen rules that are going to come showering down upon us in a few books later. Genesis three eight to nine, when the cool evening breeze was blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. No more walking in complete innocence and in complete right relationship. Now they're hiding. We're fearful. We're out of here. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And what did God do? Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? God looking for us, even though he knew perfectly well where Adam was. And he perfectly knew the heart of man that had decided to be disobedient. Adam and Eve now cowering from their provider and creator, naked and ashamed, it says. We need to see the theology about what's going on here, the big picture. You see, there's a lot of nakedness in these first three chapters, and it shouldn't go unnoticed. Literally, the nakedness should not go unnoticed. Before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were blissfully at peace with their nakedness. Didn't bother them one jot. In fact, the scripture draws our attention to their state of mind, thus drawing our attention to an important theme. So in Genesis 2... Verse 25, it says, plain as day, written down by Moses to talk about Jesus, to talk about relationship, written down for you. Now, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That has got to be of utmost importance. They felt no shame, nothing. All was good. And what's the first consequence of eating the forbidden fruit? What's the very first thing that's recorded for us? Genesis 3, verse 7, at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. This realization of their nakedness causes them to cover themselves and to hide from God. Wow, that's a long way from walking around enjoying God's presence and enjoying everything around that's been made forever to suddenly shame, guilt, cover up and hide. But God raises a question to them. How did you know you were naked, he says. The answer is that they now knew the difference between good good and evil. It was their deceitful hearts, not their bodies, that were laid bare. And this showed their desire for man to go his own way, and in doing so, to bring about shame and nakedness upon himself. Hence, their move to make fig leaf coverings for themselves. And notice this as well, that Eve now knew that the snake had deceived her. Innocence was completely gone. She now knew, oh, I've eaten this. Now I know that the snakes deceived me. Innocence, completely and utterly wrecked and gone. That perfect relationship shattered. So why is this nakedness and shame so important? Well, it's because it was never our intended default position, ever, And God doesn't want to leave us in that place of nakedness and shame. And so, because of this, He begins to show us throughout Scripture this grand theme restoration of you and I. To deal with the shame, to deal with the nakedness. And we're introduced to the way in which God will fulfill His promise to save mankind but we're also introduced to what it will look like. Remember Adam and Eve covering their shame with fig leaves. Okay, we might read it as a story, but there is so much importance wrapped up in this. They realize they they're naked shame has now entered into their lives, so they pick up fig leaves, sew them together, and they make coverings to cover their shame in front of a holy God who is walking or about to walk in the garden with them. At the culmination of chapter 3, we are shown the glimpse of the way in which God will deal with our guilt and our shame. We cannot do anything of ourselves. That is absolutely plain throughout scripture. We cannot do anything of ourselves. So God continually makes the first moves towards us. Keeps coming at us. Keeps coming at us. He came looking for us in the garden whilst we hid ourselves from his face in fear because we realized that what had been provided for us, we've kicked aside and said, I don't want that. The innocence of our lives, and the protection and the provision of our creator, we said, don't want it. And it was blown away. It was exposed and we turned away from a holy God in an act of disobedience. And still God came after us. And still God continues to come after you and I today. We tried to hide our shame with fig leaves. We made our own coverings to try and make amends. And do you know what? I think we still do that today. I still think we reach for fig leaves to try and make our own coverings and hide our own shame and guilt from God, who knows everything. But God had a better way. Genesis 3.21, I believe, tells us the whole story of what God is about to do. Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now, we could easily miss that because the pace of this story is running so fast through Genesis, through the creation and everything else that we can miss the little insights that are in there. God provided a covering of animal skins that was a better covering than the fig leaves that Adam and Eve had sewn together for themselves. God showing us what he was going to do. I am going to provide for you a covering because your covering, what you try and do, is never ever going to be good enough. So I'm going to provide a covering for you. And it's a covering by which our shame is hidden totally all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of the things that we've done wrong. And you'll see this theme throughout Exodus, throughout Leviticus, and throughout the Old Testament in the provision of blood offerings for guilt and forgiveness. And Jesus, Jesus is the seed of woman who will eventually give his blood and died to cover our guilt and our shame in the greatest act of restoration and love that we could ever avail ourselves of. At Thursday Fellowship on Thursday, surprisingly enough, we sang a hymn which rang with the truth of this theme. And the last line of this verse or chorus was, redeeming love has been my theme, and it will be till I die. In other words, God covers us from the moment of your shame now for eternity. Wow. And so when we talk about restoration, we see it there at play. God didn't leave us where we were. He made a better way. And he made a better way because he loves us. So the first thing he has to deal with is Satan who has deceived man and woman, his creation. Genesis 3.15 God says to the serpent, to Satan, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is said to Satan. You might win a battle, but you won't win the war. You might cause some harm, but you won't win the war. You might even put Jesus to death on a cross, but he's going to rise again and defeat you forevermore. In Genesis chapter 3. And that's why I want you to see what the theme is, what the big picture is, what the overall story here, offspring, seed, Okay, in Hebrew, it means seed in Hebrew. So hostility between the seed of Satan and the seed of Eve. But notice that it's a he who will come and rescue us. The seed of woman will be a he who will rescue us. A promised seed that can, we can follow through the historical books of the Old Testament. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to follow the seed through the first few books and we see what God's intended purposes are, his intended choice of people to serve him through the Old Testament, all in relation to Jesus who's been promised to us right here in Genesis 3. So we look forward to the final act in which eternity is restored. A bit of a spoiler alert here. Guess what makes a reappearance right at the very end of Revelation? What's been denied to us? What comes back at the very last chapter of Revelation? Tree of life. Okay, tree of life at the beginning, tree of life at the end, denied access, given access. Wow. Because that's God's intended position for you and I with him. But only through Jesus now only through the covering that God has given to us. Satan may gain some wins by striking his heel, but Jesus will have the final say and will strike a blow to the head of our enemy, rendering him beaten and defeated. So a tip when reading the books of the Old Testament, follow the seed. If you want to see where God's blessing lies, follow the seed, not the... There's there's plenty of side stories that will tell you how that seed is protected, but follow the seed. Keep an eye on the seed. Keep an eye on the fact that God, who made a promise here in Genesis 3, fulfills it all the way through this book. All the way through. And he's faithful to keep his promises. He is faithful to keep his promises to all of us. You see, there is one story, one promise, and it's the theme of, Of Scripture. God loves you. God loves you and provides cover for your guilt, my guilt and your shame and my shame. He covers it completely. Now you might be saying that sat there going, yeah, but I know what I did this morning. I know what the first thought, I mean, Jamie was very honest. He reached over and was looking for his, looking for his phone because he wanted to know his first thought was not, oh, I just must give this day to God. And if most of us, that's true of most of us. So we might be sat there thinking, well, I know I'm still in a place of shame and guilt. I know that I don't put God first. But be assured of this. God covers you. Jesus, when you plead Jesus, when you've accepted Jesus, Jesus' blood covers your guilt and your shame for all eternity. That doesn't mean that we can get away with everything. It means that we just have to make sure we keep a short account and put it right. But Jesus is not being crucified over and over and over and over and over again. He's done it once and for all. And it covers your guilt and your shame today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after and forever and ever. Doesn't run out. And we get access, finally, in that final restoration to the tree of life again. But first, as we will see, once we've set our hearts and we've had our hearts open to disobedience, mankind will run away with his thoughts of deception and his thoughts of wanting to go his own way. And we draw further and further and further away from God, who thankfully chases us, and chases us, and chases us, and pursues us. Relentless in his pursuit of you and I. Never tires of it, never stops. That's why our worship, when we come and bring our worship and we sing together, we're not singing from a place of, well I wish it could be like this. I wish my relationship could be this close. Actually we sing because our relationship is that close, because Jesus has made a way. And it was always God's intention for us to have that intimate relationship with him. But mankind, as this story tells you, will go further and go to great depths to try and cover his inhumanity. His broken relationship with God is exposed for all to see. And the purpose, I think, of most of this book is to show us that left to our own devices, we would just leave God and walk away and think only of ourselves. So this book tells us what the heart of man is, but it also tells us what the heart of God is, that he's not going to leave you like that and he's going to keep coming for you. Thank the Lord. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.